So today we are continuing our way through our uh, series in the book of Luke. And so if, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, uh, there are pew Bibles probably near you somewhere. Um, and so you could turn in, in the pew Bible to, to page 855. And the, the larger numbers are the chapters, the smaller numbers are the, the verses. And so we, we begin at, at verse um, 26. And so uh, remember that, that Luke is a biography of Jesus Christ, written probably in the 60s AD by a man who's a well-educated physician And uh, we saw two weeks ago in the very beginning of this book, in verse 1 to 4, that he gives us his his purpose statement. He says, that I'm writing this so that you can have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then last week, we we looked at the announcement of the the birth of John the Baptist, this uh, incredible prophet that would come to herald the the Messiah, and and just the way that um, Zechariah, though he had doubts, that, and he had been waiting for so long for a child, just as Israel had been, been waiting um, for a Messiah. And so now, though, uh, finally he's beginning to, to turn the, the narrative to, to Christ. So again, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, and that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of, Na- of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you that certainty is, is even possible concerning the things that we have been taught, Lord, that we, we can know you, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God of the Bible, because you have, have decided to reveal yourself in, in your word. So, Lord, we, we pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, 
Lord, that we would grow and, and know you better, Lord, and live to you through the study of this text. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may have seen, sometimes it's on Facebook or online, it's called Babylon B. Um, it's a, they do satirical articles, but especially kind of religious satirical articles. And I, and I saw one recently that was uh, kind of joking about pastors always using Lord of the Rings illustrations, um, and which is true. There's a lot of temptation to do that. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I think that part of the reason of that is because uh, the story of Lord of the Rings, maybe you've read the book um, by Tolkien or seen the, the movies, uh, that there are certain themes that run through it that, that just so much speak of uh, the themes of Scripture. And one of the, the themes, or I guess two themes, are humility and glory. Um, because, you know, there's this ring of power that if it fell into the wrong hands would mean the, the end of the world. And anyone who's even strong and powerful and virtuous who gets a hold of this ring would be corrupted by it. And so that's why the, the story begins in this little humble village in the Shire. It begins with a humble hobbit who nobody would even have known of, not been, been aware of. And yet, this humble hobbit in this humble Shire began, begin, becomes the centerpiece of this whole unfolding drama to, to save the world. And it actually takes a, somebody humble to, to bear the ring in order to, to save the world. And so really the, that idea of, of humility leading to glory uh, is something that we see woven through the story of Christ. And we see actually both of those themes here at the very beginning, at the, even the announcement of Christ's birth. And so what we'll do today is we'll look at this passage um, in just two sections. Uh, first, we'll look at the humility of Christ in the announcement of his birth. And then we'll look at the, the glory of Christ in the announcement of his birth. Because really, we need both of those to live the Christian life. We need the, the humility and the glory. And so let's look first at the humility of Christ. And, and right off the bat, you notice that Jesus came from a humble Place. Again, it's kind of similar to Lord of the Rings, this humble place. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And so last week, we talked about the, the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah, and it was in a very glorious place, right, announcing the birth of John the Baptist. It was in the holy city, Jerusalem, in the holy place of the temple. Um, but then here we see um, the, the angel appearing to um, Mary in this place called Galilee, in a town within this place called Nazareth. And it's, it's interesting that, that Luke actually, he says, Galilee of Nazareth, or sorry, Nazareth of Galilee, <laughs> uh, because it was a really obscure place. People didn't know where it was. That people at this time who were reading Luke wouldn't have been able to, to pick out Nazareth on a map, probably. And so they needed to know, oh, it, and it's in the, the region of Galilee. I mean, it's similar to even where I grew up um, in high school in North Carolina. It's called Tuckasegee 
but I can never tell people, oh, I'm from Tuckasegee, North Carolina. You know, because they'll say, well, I have no idea where that is. I, but I have to say, Tuckasegee in western North Carolina, southwest of Asheville. And oh, okay. Um, and that's basically what Luke is doing here, that he's saying, okay, the, the, the angel appeared in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, so people can situate themselves. And so really that shows just what a, a humble place it is, that this is not a place that was known for great achievements, not known for, for education. I mean, it, it's kind of the, the hillbillies of ancient Palestine. Um, it's, it's the place where people would say, you know, can anything good come from, from there? Which is actually something that the Pharisees sometimes said to, to Jesus. Well, this guy, he's an uneducated person from, from Nazareth in Galilee. How can he possibly be a teacher of the law? And so God then, when, when he's, he's sovereignly bringing the Savior into the world, he's, he's uniting God and man in one person. And the place that he chooses, it, chooses isn't... Seattle of the time. It's not the, the Washington, D.C. or the New York or London or Paris. Uh, you know, some of you probably heard how Amazon was hunting recently for a headquarters and every city was promising tax breaks and all kinds of benefits. And of course, they ended up in, in New York, a, a place of, of influence. And God could have chosen the Messiah to come to a place in the ancient world like Rome or Jerusalem, or Athens, or Antioch, or Alexandria. Uh, it could be centers of religion, or philosophy, or education, or politics. But instead, God chooses this obscure town in Galilee that probably most people wouldn't be able to find on a map. And this actually makes a lot of sense if we know God's methodology, that this is very much the way that God works in the world. And actually, this is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn there in your, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, the Apostle Paul says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so really, God is following this pattern of, of shaming the wise uh, by having Jesus be from Galilee, from um, Nazareth. And I think that probably many of us here have, have heard enough Christmas sermons to say, oh yes, this, it's really great that you know, God chooses the, the weak things of the world, to shame the proud, we, we understand this. But then we think about just the, the patterns of our world today, our society, and that's just not the way that, that things work. That whether we recognize it or not, not we're so prone to want to choose that people that, that come from really significant places. I mean, even just think about where the, the last few presidents got their education. Uh, Trump from Wharton Business School, University of Pennsylvania, Barack Obama, Harvard, University, or Harvard Law School, Columbia University, uh, George Bush, Yale University, Harvard University, uh, Bill Clinton, Yale Law School, George H.W. Bush, Yale University. Um, and there's been a lot of talk, you know, the Supreme Court, how most of them came from Yale and Harvard Law School. 
And so we, as we think about just the choice of leaders, it seems that it matters in some ways where they came from. That somebody who comes from a place of, of power or influence is more likely to be chosen for leadership than somebody who comes from an insignificant backwater, somebody who comes from a, a place like Nazareth. But yet, God chooses a, a humble place. But he not only chooses the, this humble place, but he also chooses a humble woman in a humble place. Uh, the, when the angel appeared to Zechariah, what we looked at last week, he, he was appearing to somebody who was pretty influential in that society. I mean, he wasn't a king, he wasn't an emperor, but, I mean, he was a priest. He was part of the, the clergy. He was somebody who had the privilege of going into the holy place of the temple, which we, we talked about how that was something that very few people were able to do. But then as the, it, it moves from the holy city of Jerusalem to the backwaters community of Nazareth, it's not then that the angel appears to somebody who's more influential according to the world standards than Zechariah, but actually less, somebody who is humble. And this is what we see in verse 27, that the angel came to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so from, from Luke, we know a little bit about Mary. We know she was a young girl, a virgin. Um, people speculate about her age, probably between 12 and 16. Uh, she was betrothed to a, a man named Joseph. And betrothal at that point was a little different than today, where when, when you got engaged, there was really a contract. They would pay the, the bridal price. Um, and so they were, they were legally bound to one another, but yet not formally married, and the marriage had not yet been, been consummated. But really, though, beyond that, we don't know very much about Mary. I mean, it's kind of amazing, actually, how little we know about her. We don't know who her parents were exactly. We don't know the size of her family. We don't know what she had been doing for the first years of her life. But yet we do know something about her relationship with God because of what the angel says in verse 28. He says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And so right there we, just, we see these two things about, about Mary, that she was favored of the Lord and that the Lord was with her. Um, she was favored. She was a recipient of the the grace of God. I mean, she was somebody like any of us who is born in Adam, who, who struggled with, with sin, but the Lord had, had displayed his grace to her in really marvelous ways and that that grace had, had overflowed in her life. And, and so she is favored of the Lord. But yet being favored of God didn't lead her to a place of pride, but actually to a place of humility. Look at verse 28 or uh, rather, verse 29. She says, But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And so Mary doesn't hear the, the greeting of the angel and say, Yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm very favored. <laughs> God is with me because I'm, I'm just that great of a person. Um, but she begins to, to question and, and wonder what exactly is going on. And, and she begins to wonder, why would the angel appear to, to me? 
this young girl in Nazareth? Why would he speak to me? So there's this humility, but at the same time, there's a, there's a really remarkable confidence as well um, in who she is before the Lord. I mean, we, we talked about how Zachariah was completely terrified, that usually that's the reaction to, to angels, but it seems like Mary's not so much worried about the presence of the angel as she is about the words of the angel. Why is he saying this to me? Um, and so in a sense, you, you know, you can think of in Lord of the Rings where, where Frodo wonders why he should be the one to carry the, the ring. She's wondering why should I be the one to, to carry the Messiah. And then even as the angel explains this to her, um, she still doesn't pat herself on the back or turn to to pride, but she asks a very humble question in, in verse 34. She, uh, she says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And when the angel appeared to Zechariah six months earlier, remember he asked a question um, and he said, how, is this, how should I know this will happen because I'm old and my wife is old? How are we going to have a son? Um, and so it seems at first that Mary is asking a very similar question, but it's coming from a different place because the angel said that Zechariah was asking that the how question back in verse 15 because he was actually doubting the word of God. But what it seems with Mary here where she's, um, she doesn't doubt that it's going to happen, that the word is going to be fulfilled, but is still wondering, yeah, but how in the world is this going to happen? Very humble response, very different from Zechariah. And then, of course, the, the angel answers, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But then, even at the very end, she has this humble assent to the word of God, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, she's not boasting in the privilege of bearing the, the Son of God, but she calls herself, she's a servant of the Lord. She's there to do the Lord's will, to do what God requires of her, which is, I mean, really a, such a great picture of what it looks like to submit to the will of God, even when we're being asked to do something very difficult. And so she was a humble woman from a humble town. But then even the, the sign and the miracle that, that unfolds is a very humble miracle. I mean, the, the virgin birth that's being talked about here is one of the great truths of the Christian faith that has been confessed throughout the ages. But at the same time, it's been a major stumbling block, even for many who claim to, to be Christian, who, who struggle, well, how in the world could this be? It just seems impossible. And maybe even for some of you here, it's something that you struggle with of what, how, why do we believe in the, in the virgin birth, this humble sign? And I... And I think that even those questions are understandable. I mean, if, if I was perfectly honest and somebody came up to me, came into my, my office and said, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant, but I, I have never known a man and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would kind of think, well, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you maybe know that the philosophical idea, Occam's razor, it says that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. And so in that situation, all right, what's the simplest explanation? She's lying. She's not telling the truth. She's confused. Or this is a virgin conception and a virgin birth that, that most of us would, would be quite skeptical. 
And really, that is probably what Mary experienced, that she, she didn't experience people saying, wow, this is an incredible miracle from the Lord. Uh, but people didn't believe that she it was actually a virgin conception. I mean, even the Pharisees mocked Jesus in the book of John and saying, you know, you were born of sexual immorality, hinting that maybe even the word had gotten around. Well, we know where, where you came from, Jesus. Um, and even her fiancé, even Joseph, has a lot of doubts and questions. He didn't assume that she was telling the truth until God a, appeared to him in a vision and revealed it to him. And so, really then, Mary went through some extreme humiliation um, that, that she was shamed, even in a, a society where she could have been executed for adultery. I mean, it was a serious thing that she was facing. And I think that this is part of what also makes the, the virgin birth just so different from other miracles. I mean, if you were there with Moses and watched the Red Sea part and you went through on, on dry ground, you would say, wow, this guy Moses, he, he's really somebody. Or if you were there to see Elijah call down fire to consume the, the altar of Baal, and, uh, I mean, the altar, and to say, no, God is, is real, that he is actually uh, above all of the, the idols, and, and so we need to trust this prophet Elijah. Or if you were there to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego you know, survive the fiery furnace, to see them in the flames but not burned, and to come out unharmed, you would say, all right, maybe I should pay attention to these people. But yet the virgin birth isn't like those miracles because it's one that is humble, it was hidden, and it was really only visible to those who had eyes to see, who had ears to hear. And, and even today, it's only really available and recognizable by those who already recognize who Jesus is, who have confronted the reality of his work and the, and the resurrection. And so why then did, did God give this miracle, this kind of cryptic sign? Well, again, we said that that is God's pattern. What he said in 1 Corinthians, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are are. And so that's why God chose this weak woman in a a humble woman in a humble town through this humble sign. And all of it was pointing to the, the character of the Messiah that would be born, that he would be a humble Messiah who would humble himself to the point of death, even on the death on the cross, that he didn't come in, in strength, but he, he came in weakness. He didn't come in a way that people would assume that this, this must be a king who's going to rule and reign, and, and this, this pattern of, of humility and weakness that, that followed him through his life, that just as Mary um, was experiencing the, the work of God but experienced humiliation, so Jesus experienced humiliation as the Son of God that ultimately led to the cross where he was humiliated, bearing the, the sins of his people, bearing our sins in our place. And so I, I think then that that this pattern of, of humility that we see in Christ, even from the announcement of his birth, just needs to shape the way that we think about 
the Christian life, the way we think about the, the, even our life together as a church, that we shouldn't be just about what seems wise and influential to the world. We're not just about what seems powerful according to, to human reckoning or the human way of, of calculating. And this is something I think that the early church actually did quite well, that caring for the, for the weak and the, the marginalized, caring for um, those who wouldn't be of any account in society and not caring if they were, were misunderstood by the society around them. And to this point, listen to this quote. This is a Roman official uh, in the early church during the persecution of Christians. Um, name is Celsus, and this is what he wrote about Christians. He says, far be it from us, say Christians, um, um, sorry, far from us, say Christians, be any man possessed of any culture or wisdom or judgment. Their aim is to convince only worthless and contemptible people, idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. These are the only ones whom they manage to turn into believers. Um, and so you can see what this Roman official is, is seeing, that God has chosen the, the weak things of the world. And, and, and what a compliment, right, that, that he says that, that the Christians are, are about the, the worthless, the contemptible, the idiots, slaves, poor women, and children. And, and that's because the, the Christians were actually doing what Christ desires, is to, to walk in the, the humility and the, this pattern that we see in Christ. And I think, though, for, for us in, in Garnet Valley, this can be hard sometimes because I mean, we, do cut, we, we do live in a place where there are nice homes, there are, there's a good school district, um, that it's, it's not the place that's the, the Nazareth of the region. It's not the place uh, that's associated with weakness and, and humility. And so then we begin to question, well, if God's pattern is to, to choose the weak and to shame the proud, I mean, what does that mean for us? Even those in America who, by comparison to so many places in the world, have, have so much. And I think that, that as we think about that, that it's not so much that having money and, or coming from in a place of influence means that there's something wrong with you any more than coming from a place of, of weakness means that there is anything inherently better. Um, but, but really, the, the call for every single person in the world is to recognize that it's not going to be through success or through things that seem influential to the world where we'll find true meaning or purpose. It's not those things that ultimately will define us. That for believers, our life is actually hidden with God in Christ. That that is where our life is defined. And so even for Hope Church, that what defines us is not the size of our budget. It's not how many people are filling the seats. It's it's not how big of a building we're in. And again, those are good things. And Lord willing, God will increase all of those things. Um, but, I mean, woe to us if those are the things that begin to define us and if those things that should lead to humility from the Lord actually lead to pride, which is what has happened over and over again to Christians and churches throughout the ages is that, is that we, we get stuff or people and then we begin to look at ourselves and, and it quickly turns into pride and we begin having a ministry of glory rather than a ministry of humility that, that follows in the way of, of Christ. And so our call then is to join Mary and say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord 
let it be to me according to your word. That, that if it is, it's your will that I suffer, Lord, let it be. If, if it's your will that I misunderstood, let it be. That that is walking in the path of, of humility. But thankfully, though, that's not the, the whole story. Because we not only share in the humility of Christ, but also in his glory. And we see the, the glory displayed here in the announcement just as much as the, the humility. So let's just spend the rest of our time seeing how the glory shines through. And really there, there are five rays, we could say, that shine through that display the, the glory of Christ from the very uh, beginning. So let's look at these individually. So the first is there is glory in Christ's name. Look at verse 30. The angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And so Mary didn't decide that his name would be Jesus. It, it was a common name in the first century, but God decides, no, his name is going to be Jesus. And it's not an arbitrary name, uh, but actually it, it's the name that, that comes from Yeshua, or Joshua, it means Savior. Uh, and Matthew actually tells us that he was called Jesus because he would save us from our sins, that that is the, the mission of Jesus, is, is to come and to display his glory by seeking and saving the lost. And so we see his, his glory here, that he's not just another prophet, he's not just a, another moral teacher, but the Bible says that salvation is of the Lord, that that he is the Savior, and, and, and that's really, really, really good for us because we have a sin problem, which means we break God's law, and that separates us from God, and we could never save ourselves, but that Jesus actually comes to do for us what we actually couldn't do for ourselves, and that displays his glory, and we have access to that glory in Christ, not from ourselves. But then second... There's glory in Christ's greatness. Uh, look at the beginning of verse 32. The angel continues, He will be great. And you'll remember that this is very similar to something that the, the angel said about uh, John the Baptist back in verse 15. It, but it said that he, John the Baptist would be great before the Lord. But then here it says that Jesus will be great. And Really, the commentaries helpfully point out that in Scripture, people can be great in limited ways, that John is great before the Lord, or somebody can be a great warrior or a great father or a great parent, um, that we can have limited greatness as creatures. But throughout the Bible, this unqualified greatness is only ever true of God, that only God is great with no ands, and, and no buts. And that is exactly what, what Jesus gets here. He will be great. That, and this is, speaks to his, his divinity, to his, his power. And it challenges our assumption of greatness, that we won't find greatness in, in the great things of the world. Um, our, our money isn't great. Our education isn't great. Our successes aren't great. Our church isn't great. That really only Christ is great. And the only way that we will find true, lasting greatness is through faith in him. But then third, there's glory in Christ's sonship. Look at verse 32. 
that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And then also look at verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And throughout Luke, the, the title Son of God really tells us two things about Jesus. Um, and the first is this important truth that he is the eternal Son of God, that, that as the second person of the Trinity, he is the, the same essence as the Father. He, he wasn't created, but he is God from before the foundation of the world, eternally begotten of the Father. But then also that the title Son of God tells us something about who Jesus is according to his human nature as well. Um, and we'll look at this when we get to Acts, sorry, um, Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Um, it's the genealogy of Jesus. It goes all the way from Jesus to Adam. But at the very end of the genealogy in verse 38, it says that, that Jesus, through all these dis, uh, lines, uh, that he was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Luke is saying that in a way, Adam is a son of God, not the eternal son of God, but he's the, the firstborn of, of all creation. And so Jesus also, as a son of God, according to his human nature, is the one who steps into the role of being the second Adam, where he obeys in all the ways that the Adam, our first parent, failed to obey. Um, and so this is very important for us, that, that we, unlike Jesus, are not sons by, by nature, that we actually started off as enemies of God, and that it is through the, the eternal sonship of, of Christ, taking on himself a human nature, that we actually can be adopted and, and brought into his family and can share in, in the greatness of being part of the, the household of God. But then fourth, there's glory in, in Christ's royal dominion. Look at verse 32. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, there will be no end. So once again, I mean, if you think about Jesus and his, his divine nature, he ruled and reigned forever. Um, there was never a time when he did not rule. But it says that, that he, as the God-man, as the Messiah, that he will be given the throne of his father David, that, that Jesus steps into the role as the the great Davidic king, to, to rule, not just for a limited period of time, but to rule as God and man forever over all of creation, and that even now he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And so for us, then, we're not rulers of our own destiny. We're not uh, on the throne of our own lives. We're not the masters of our own fate. But ultimately, we are, we are subject to our king, not to the, to the king of this world in any way, um, not to rulers of this world, but to Jesus alone. But then, fifth and, and finally, there is glory in Christ's supreme holiness. And look at verse 35. Gabriel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called holy. And as we think about that, that term, holy. I mean, the, the temple was holy because it was set apart from other buildings. Uh, we could think of the, the Sabbath was holy because it was set apart from other days. And, and Jesus is holy because he is set apart from everything that is completely unholy. 
And, and we see this even in, in Revelation chapter 5, where we're given this vision into the throne room of heaven, and the heavenly hosts see Christ, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, and all that they can do is cast their crowns down and to cry, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. But of course, us here, we're, we're not holy by nature. We're actually unholy um, because we, we have rebelled against God. But the good news of the Bible is that the, the Holy One, who is set apart from everything that is unholy, actually entered into an unholy, broken world. And that he, he did it actually for unholy people like us. And on the cross, he took all of our unholiness on himself and paid the penalty for it. And then when we repent and trust in Christ, we are counted as completely holy in his sight, completely set apart from all that is is unholy, not in ourselves, but in him alone. And then God begins to work in and through us to, to shape us and, and to mold us for his glory. And so really then, in, in this announcement of Christ's birth, we said that we've seen this call to humility, that, that Jesus was truly human, that he was born to this, in this humble place, uh, to this humble woman, this humble uh, miracle. And so I do hope that Hope Presbyterian Church will be a place where, where people see that kind of humility shining forth when they visit, not looking um, at us or our glory, but at Jesus. Uh, but then I also hope that when, when people come to Hope, that they will see humility in us, but yet they will also see um, glory. That, that what people will see is not just people singing songs and, and reading the scripture, but they'll actually experience the glory of God that is in Christ, that Jesus really, really is glorious, that he is the, the Savior and the Savior that we need, that he really is great, completely unqualified above anything else, that he really is the, the Son of God who came into the world as, as fully God to, to step in, to obey in all the ways we couldn't, that, that he really is the one who's the king, who's, who's ruling, that, and that there's no rule and authority over Christ, and that he is the, the holy, holy God of Israel. And it is really both of these, these themes of humility and glory that we see also here in, in the Lord's Supper, that we, we see that the humility of Christ, because he, he was broken for us, his blood was shed, that he experienced um, weakness and, and died. But then we also see the glory that through the power of the resurrection, uh, this weakness and shame was transformed into to glory, um, that, that we get to experience this, looking forward to the, to the marriage supper of the Lamb to come. And even for us here who take this meal, we'll experience both the humility and the, and the glory, the humility to admit that, that we need it, that we can't sustain ourselves, that we need Christ to sustain us and to admit that we have others around us who are also believers, that we're not the only ones uh, in the room, but also to share in, in the glory of the hope and the promise of what God has done for us.